Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. And after a few weeks off for a summer break so that we could digest what we've learned from our residential weekend, the Academy, we thought we'd take the time in this edition of the podcast just to talk about what's been going on in the world in the past few weeks. And to do that, I'm joined by my colleagues Claire Fox and Dave Bowden. The big story of the past two or three weeks has been Jeremy Corbyn becoming the leader in the opinion polls among Labour Party members for the position of Labour leader, which is a shock to everybody. What do you think about that? Well, I think it does indicate, as others have said before me, that the Labour Party is so desperate to create a debate that they artificially created one, and now they've got one, they can't cope. The irony of this is is that the critique of Jeremy Corbyn from those people who are now panicking that he might win the election is is that he means what he says. This doesn't seem to me to be a, a, a sensible critique because that would be the thing that you would want uh, a politician who leads a party to believe what they say. The problem is what he believes does feel circa 1970 and very out of date, but it does feel as though he's a conviction politician. The other problem with this whole debate is it's actually dispiriting that we are witnessing the hollowing out of a political party quite so publicly and in such a humiliating way. And I, I think the fact that over the weekend serious politicians were saying we've got to stop the election because the wrong man's going to win and the process is out of control is uh, very dangerous in terms of what politics might mean. So I've now got to the point where I think, well, if he wins, God, you know, good luck to him. His reply to whether there was people joining the Labour Party in order for him to win was, well, if young people are joining the Labour Party because they think there's an interesting debate going on, I'm hardly going to object, which I thought was a perfectly reasonable reply as it goes. Yeah, and it's striking that no-one else is really talking about the other candidates. There are leading Labour politicians who are fighting out this campaign, but they've said nothing of any real significance or substance to differentiate between them. And what appears is... What is very reminiscent of the uh, Blair and Brownies is a lot of factional infighting, which almost seems to be entirely kept amongst kind of a, a small coterie of kind of Labour Party journalists and kind of leaders. And it seems like Corbyn's the only one who's actually having an argument with members of his political party. And it's it is both striking that they're worried about uh, a kind of entryism of people joining the Labour Party, disrailing their elections. But there's also that the the concept that there are so many entryist far-left groups just waiting for the moment to strike in a planned structure, as if these groups are such a significant part of British society they would derail the electoral process. I mean, it really just shows... A, it is the, the kind of hollowing out of a party, but a party that is, I mean, really so detached from the actual process of of being a party, from doing even the most basic form of politics. I mean, that really seems to be what Corbyn has appealed to, is that he is at least trying to become leader of the Labour Party. Um, for all of the uh, uh, problems you may have with that, he is seeking to become the leader of that and to, uh, to hold forth with a set of um, convictions and policies. And yeah, the, the rest of the new Labour team, many of whom have served in government, many of whom have been around for a long time, don't know how to counteract that, and that's quite frightening. I think as well that when I heard Andy Burnham over the weekend trying to say he's the authentic voice of the people, uh, as it were, trying to kind of out working class left, you know, accent, you know, way of kind of appealing to the Corbyn constituency, you also thought, why don't you have an argument with Corbyn about his politics? I mean, there's plenty to argue over. And so, it, and I, I mean, in fact, I just said he was, you know, old-fashioned with 
that's neither here nor there. He does have a set of beliefs. When you actually go through them, I disagree with almost all of them. I think that they are... He's often very illiberal. He's completely unable, it seems to me, to deal with some of the economic challenges of today. He's sentimental, his arguments on Trident, everything from Trident to being a vociferous campaigner for a smoking ban. I mean, any number of different things. But if you're in the Labour Party, you would want people to take him up on his policies, but they don't. They won't, because they haven't really got any counter-policies to take him up on. And they're not used to having genuine political rows, it seems to me, in the Labour Party. They're used to swapping sound bites and uh, manoeuvring behind the scenes like some kind of courtly politics, you know. They're buying off their supporters behind the scenes and this, he doesn't fit into the scheme. Absolutely. I mean, there was a interview with John McTernan, who was one of Blair's advisers, and he kind of ends up with this comment about that there are you know, a lot of suicidal activists in the Labour Party. And basically, he's just saying, well, well you know, this whole having a party thing in order to get elected is a real pain in the ass, and it would be such a great thing if we could just get rid of these people. Uh, but unfortunately, they've democratised the whole thing, as so they uh, claim, and therefore they are stuck with these people who themselves actually are hoping for something to believe in. And if Jeremy Corbyn's the only candidate that looks like he's got some principles and sounds a bit left-wing, then that's the person they'll end up choosing, or at least on first preferences. I suspect he'll probably lose uh, even now. But that's that's the way the, these things are at the moment. And, and also that kind of appeals to the, the same problem that both Nigel Farage and the SNP appealed to, which is the kind of clique in Westminster uh, just doing things for their own sakes and being quite sort of individualist politicians rather than actually trying to, to tackle the problems of the country and pro- providing some kind of alternative to the Conservatives, which is sadly absent. And one thing is is that Corbyn is rightly played on, but which actually when you hear people interviewed about it, where people say if he wins this election, the Labour Party are unelectable. You know, the fact that that's the only critique that they have of him, why it's so insulting to the electorate, is it assumes that the electorate are a fixed body of people who can never be won over to anything. And, of course, the obvious counter to that are people who are phoning in radio programmes and, and writing letters and all the rest of it, activists and ordinary people who, from the Labour Party, say, well, we, we maybe we don't want to be elected on the terms that we're just going to be like a Tory party. I mean, people have said that fairly regularly, and we're not going to get elected anyway. So the fact that that's the only critique is where it reduces politics to its most bare-bone opportunistic. The only purpose of being in a party is to get elected. And I'm at least glad that people are saying, no, that's not the only purpose of a political party. But that's about the only good thing, because generally speaking, it's depressing this has happened, actually. Depressing in the sense that it just indicates as n- if, if the dynamism of the new Labour Party is Jeremy Corbyn, they've got problems. Shall we move on to our second story, which is... Uh... Ashley Madison, the uh, adultery website. Explain more, Dave. Well, yeah, speaking of problems confronting perhaps people of a certain age, eh, the leak of Ashley Madison's users, which is a website that people sign up to so they can have covert affairs. So it's like-minded adults finding other like-minded adults for a bit of fun on the side, I guess, that, that people can choose. And they've uh, had a an ethical hack. So a group has decided to hack into them to reveal all of their contact lists, which is obviously there are millions of people who use this website all around the world. And there's obviously enormous problems for Ashley Madison and an awful lot of problems for people, perhaps that their information is out there. 
What's interesting about the story for me particularly is not just about the kind of issues around cybersecurity that it kind of raises, but actually the the reaction to it. Because normally you look at somewhere like like Twitter, which is kind of kind of sort of vicious and clamping down on any sense of moral judgment around people's sexuality or sex lives. But there has been this real kind of moralistic kind of approach that the, it's good that these people have been have been found out really that kind of cheaters are kind of been caught out on, and it sort of shows what a, a strange position I think we're in at the moment culturally, where actually adults getting together a sense ostensibly in private, just enabled by this technology, to do things that we may not approve of as a society but we think that people should be allowed to get on with and it's up to them is treated in actually in this kind of incredible sort of sort of sense of actually they've done something wrong and that this is a kind of ethical hack in a certain way that this is really the kind of voice of a kind of group of hackers who are kind of exposing people to the masses and it kind of really kind of picks apart that uncomfortable sense we have around people's private lives now that actually people should be entitled to get up to things in private which are, are up to them and between them and their partner and this is probably not of any kind of good to to anyone to have the perhaps ins and outs of their relationship exposed in this sense that this is a kind of really outside force although it's kind of caused a lot of amusement for some people and probably a lot of terror in others I think it's probably quite worrying events I think beyond just for the owners of Ashley Madison and its users. Well actually a, a sort of similar reflection which is I was really struck by the fact that if a corporation gets hacked usually or kind of makes a mistake or through a weakness of cybersecurity loses the personal details of people, what we usually do or what would be you'd think was people turn on the corporation and they say, how ridiculous, if a government did it, you know, if it loses your records and millions of people's private lives are exposed, everybody's up in arms at the corporation or the government or whatever. And in this instance... It's been almost ubiquitous that people say serves them right. The the other thing though that that really strikes me is is that we are in a real muddle about what is uh, hacktivism. I mean, what on earth would make you do this, right? So there's been justifications for effectively illegal activity that hacks into corporations or organisations' private details on the basis that they're warmongers or that they're revealing these big state secrets or, you know, this is so that we can all know the truth behind. In this instance, they're revealing the individual private lives of individuals who they've decided they don't approve of behaving immorally in some kind of Victorian kind of, uh, you know, uh, tutting way. And I think it indicates why we have to be very careful about encouraging a climate where transparency is so you know the kind of the morally good thing that it allows people who call themselves activists to go around and effectively just reveal all and i think these people are irresponsible absolutely unethical and it's a very dangerous state of affairs i don't want them knowing my private life and i don't want them to decide my private life's the sort of thing that should be revealed but it's not just me in general but i think we should be as equally hard about them leaking any uh, details from corporations as we would of this just what you said reminds me of the hoo-ha 10 years ago or so where activists were outing people who were gay but privately gay in public 
and uh, that same kind of thing. But it's, you know, if, if people choose to come out and reveal that they are gay, that's that's absolutely fine. If they are being hypocrites, if they're politicians and being hypocrites, maybe there's some justification for it. But the mass revelation of lots and lots of ordinary people's private lives to the world seems to me to be quite outrageous. I wondered if it's worth discussing what this says about the state of marriage as well, though, because these sites have been around for quite a long time now, and it's got, but this has brought the whole issue to the fore, because it comes on the back of the big debate we had last year about gay marriage, and obviously Ireland's just had a referendum about that. So it's, it's on the one hand, there's the real lived experience of marriage, which more and more people seem to be blurring, and on the other hand, there's this real activism towards we want to be part of that thing well it was also striking that in the same week this happened um gawker the kind of american website which kind of engages in a lot of online gossiping kind of publishes a lot of stories from around the kind of web and has often been accused of being very intrusive retracted one of its stories because it outed uh, an executive at conde nast because he tried to you know, kind of procure an affair with a gay prostitute and the kind of prostitute then went to the press about it. Um, and they were kind of attacked for bringing this information of how dare they kind of delve into this man's private life. And then at the same time, there was this reaction of sort of saying, well, these people had it coming in Ashley Madison's case. So it sort of shows that there's... Uh, what's kind of what's really kind of going on, I think, with, with things like Ashley Madison is that there's that sort of sense of... The kind of the old traditions are, are bad. There's a kind of there's a kind of new moralism at work, which is that people who are kind of part of this old fashioned tradition of marriage are really kind of you know just sneaking around on the side, and there's something kind of wrong with that, which doesn't really correlate to people's more liberal attitudes towards um, sex and sexuality, kind of across the the board. We're sort of becoming more tolerant of, of of understanding that people want to form their relationships in their own kind of particular ways. So that's, I mean, that's an observation for me. One of the things, though, that does strike me is, is that if you actually look at the PR for the website, it is like have an affair with no consequence. And what I thought was, this is the bit where I did think that'll show you, um, which is, is that it was kind of like a kind of risk-free extramarital affair. And the one thing that you can be sure about is, is that having extramarital affairs, which has gone on for a very long time, and people do it all the time, but this idea that you can kind of somehow get away with it through the technology, well, you know, in that in, in this instance, that kind of no consequence, I want to have my cake and eat it, hasn't worked out so well. But uh, by the way, we're having this kind of discussion about the ethics of these kind of things. You know, funny sort of way, quite enjoyed the exposition of Lord Sewell in the uh, Sun on Sunday. Snorting coke, prostitutes, he's got it all, everybody. You know, I mean, this is a good old-fashioned expose of the kind of what goes on behind the seedy side of the peers of the realm. The only thing I did think when I read it, and the first thing I thought, and I know a number of people have picked up on this on Twitter, is it felt somehow comforting to be in a straightforward sex scandal revelation sting by the sun moment after the kind of ethical confusions of the Ashley Madison case. Because I thought, I know where I am now. I can deal with this. I can deal with this. It actually, to be fair, though, um, just uh, as a defence of tabloid journalism, because, you know, some of these stories, can, you can feel a little bit, I mean, you know, you wouldn't want to be his wife and it's 
personal tragedy and all this. But the guy was in charge of the ethics committee and the behaviour standards. I've always hated those standards uh, and ethics committees set up by Parliament. The fact that he was the chair of it. The tabloid journalists have done us all a favour by exposing that particular hypocrisy, even though I don't want to make it more miserable for the man. But I also felt good old-fashioned scandal, I quite like him. Absolutely, and one in the eye for um, all the Leveson stuff as well. You know, absolutely fair play if you are going to come out in public and bang on about standards and you're not living up to them. I think it's fair enough to reveal that hypocrisy. Let's uh, let's move on to a third story, which is um, the proposal by Brighton Council to have a public consultation on banning smoking in the public places that they control. So, the particular place that was the centre of the news was the idea of banning smoking on Brighton Beach. Now, whatever the justifications for the indoor smoking ban, they do seem to be a bit thin when it comes to an outdoor smoking ban. The idea that anybody could be uh, seriously affected by the smoke from people sitting near them on a windy beach just seems absolutely ludicrous. And so they have to, I think, justify it on the basis of people being role models for children or and so denormalizing smoking which is the which is the thing that the public health lobby would really love to do make smokers outcasts drive smokers away from public view sort of almost airbrush them out of history and i just think that this is a, a fairly draconian measure that doesn't solve any problems in terms of health it can't possibly be justified in health it does show a really authoritarian streak to what public health is really about which is basically picking on groups of people who have habits they don't approve of and then basically driving them out of public life i really hope that brighton council don't get away with this but there is precedent there is this has already happened in new york other councils are looking at it as well and i think it's a very dangerous trend yeah and when you think about how frightening this is that this is happening in brighton what is you know for generations has been regarded as the kind of great liberal space you know where londoners would would decamp to to have a you know a sort of a sense of hedonism and freedom that you know could be this backdrop to brighton rock that it could that you know was very much a sort of setting for a kind of amoral space to have a battle out against over morality for graham green yeah, and there's always been, you know, has a vibrant gay scene, has very much that sort of sense that Brighton is where you can go to, to be yourself, to enjoy freedom, is bringing forward such an authoritarian measure. And it's sort of doing so in this really pernicious sort of language of turning your know, adults into kind of role models, that it's about protecting the children. Um, and it's no longer really about adult space or adult fun. There's no conception of the idea that kind of public space is exactly that it's full of people getting up to all manner of different things which as long as it's kind of legal is generally fine that's something you cope with actually we have to sanitize this whole area and this whole space for the sort of sake of what is claimed to be in the name of children but in reality is actually about meeting the particular prejudices and likes and dislikes of local council officials and i think the fact that people don't have a don't have a strong enough principled reaction um, to that is a is a bit of a problem in itself. You know, Brighton has imposed any number of different measures in recent years around alcohol bans, around you know what you can and can't do in public space. And this, for me, is actually a, a, the latest manifestation of this. It's not even just straightforwardly about public health. This is about the management and regulation of public spaces and and trying to sort of prevent any sort of sense of people just being able to to do their own thing, really, unless it's approved by a higher authority. 
really we've got to rein in councils this is ridiculous and it's local authorities power you know being completely abused in terms of what might be the local democracy who should be representing people and acting on their behalf and and instead of policing them but you know i do sometimes think when we've just had the budget and people talk about public spending cuts and there's a kind of would you go for austerity or you know you've either got to be against all cuts or all the rest of it there's so many things that are committed by the public sector that should be cut that are just absolutely what are these people doing is a waste of time energy they have no right to be policing private people in public spaces in the way that they are hyperactively doing through their public uh, spaces uh, safety orders and and this kind of uh, thing so i just think this is a step too far and if it means we should cut this kind of activity from a council agenda we might save a bit of money at the same time good and the other thing that came up when I because I did a few media interviews about this and the other thing that got thrown at me was this idea that we can't tolerate other people's behaviours around us so people were moaning about litter and things like that as well but also the very idea that you could occupy a public space and somebody would be close to you that would be doing something that was mildly irritating and that had to be banned because you couldn't just go up to them and say could you turn your music down or could you smoke somewhere else or or whatever, or even just tolerate their mildly irritating behaviour? Somebody had to come in and deal with this situation on your behalf because you were incapable of it. Really worrying tendency there that, you know, we ha- we live in a society and we have to get on with each other and tolerate other people's habits. And it seems to me that this, this really plays into a certain tendency in society at the moment, which is becoming more and more intolerant of even the most mildly irritating habits of other people. Let's move on to the final discussion, uh, which is David Cameron's speech about ISIS. I wanted to link this to one of the things that I did last week, which I was on any questions. And um I suppose this is pertinent because it's always very nerve-wracking being on any questions because you don't know what questions are going to come up. First of all, it was being held in Exeter College, which is a big further education college, great college, actually, uh, great reputation. I know that they enter into debate matters. They're hosting uh, the competition there this year. But one of the questions that was asked right at the end was about, you know, whether we should have cuts in in further education and what an outrage and what an attack it was to have cuts in further education. This was a mean, horrible government kind of attacking young people. And as soon as the the Tory candidate on the uh, platform started to reply, they started to boo and hiss. It didn't matter what he said, basically, that was the deal. And I came back, and I think it does relate to the ISIS thing, which is I came back to say, well, I just don't think you can judge standards of education based on money spent I mean there's just more to it and this just amounts to a kind of whinging a sense of entitlement and obviously it was quite hard work because the audience at that particular any questions were FE students FE lecturers so it wasn't a popular reply but this relates it seems to me to some of the discussion around ISIS in some ways which is People just wanting to kind of go for an easy answer and uh, not wanting to confront some difficult questions. So one of the questions was about the David Cameron speech on young people joining ISIS. And actually, for once, I'd say, you know, not to be sectarian about it, I thought that the first half of what David Cameron said, or a quarter or whatever, 
I have had some merit. He was taking the issue seriously. He, he might have overstated it when he said it was the uh, challenge of our generation. But I think that he confronted some difficult questions about why young British people are attracted to uh, Islamic State. And I, I thought that was a reasonable thing for him to do. Sadly, he then went on to, uh, having then having argued that we should, um, you know, win the battle of ideas, counter the propaganda that's been put, you know, all of these kind of things. He then went on for a series of solutions that would effectively close down debate, amount to no more than thought policing, and actually avoided the, the, the discussion. So that's on the one hand my critique of him. But on the other hand, the critique of David Cameron came from people, which was, oh, you can't say that because you're going to upset lots of young Muslims. And it just struck me this kind of attempt to win arguments by not upsetting anyone was an unlikely way of winning an argument. And that actually this uh, critique that the, the the problem with the Tories is they're too mean to Muslims and as a consequence they join ISIS was really insulting. And I felt there was a connection somehow with this idea that, you know, we all have to be nice to people in education. They all have to have, be given lots of money and young people will thrive if everyone's nice to them. I mean, that's just not what it's like, right? Um, we actually have to challenge some of the prejudices of the young, whether they're Muslim, non-Muslim or anything else, and sort of say, as I was trying to say to some of the students in the audience the FE College, you know, you maybe have to kind of grow up a bit and that maybe this is a hard argument. You have to accept that it's not just all about mean, horrible cutting Tories over there or meet or, or, or and so on but actually listen to the arguments and possibly learn something and so on and so forth so I thought there was some connection uh, between those two things I'm particularly interested in this ISIS question because I don't know what the answer is but I do think it's fascinating that second generation third generation uh, immigrants often who are, happen to be muslim are going and joining this barbaric force some people try and say it's immigration it's obviously not because of their generational relationship with immigration and it's one of the big issues that we're going to be having a keynote panel discussion on at the battle of ideas and i actually hope that we can shine some light on the discussion but also just be honest enough to say we don't know all the answers but to try and understand the phenomena as a way of uh, uh, trying to win some hearts and minds well i think that you've covered that very very well so on that note that's the end of the news thank you very much to dave and claire thank you for listening to the podcast of ideas for more information about our podcasts or to subscribe to them visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast